We're going to finish the chapter this morning. I know I promised that for like three weeks running, but it's actually going to happen today. This is the day. John chapter 12, we're looking at verses 42 to 50. And as we, as we finish the chapter today, we're about ready to transition from one major section of John's gospel to the next. We're going to go from uh, the public ministry of Jesus, which we've been in since chapter 2, all the way through chapter 12. And we're going to transition now, beginning next week, into the private ministry that Jesus has with his disciples. And, and so next week, we are going to enter into that upper room for that last Passover, the Lord's Supper. And we're going to see how Jesus begins to prepare his disciples for what's coming, because it is going to rock their world. Now, much of today is about recapping and summarizing all that John has included here in this chapter, chapter 12. And I know you're going to be both encouraged and challenged as we look back and see how John has navigated through this chapter and the sort of the journey that he's taken us on as he's dealt with the first half of the Passion Week. So in Passion Week, we're at Wednesday, still a few days to go before that Passover. And I know I've said this a number of times, but this is another good Sunday to mention it. Uh, Remember, John is writing his gospel 25 to 30 years after Matthew, Mark, and Luke had written down their gospels and had circulated their writings to the church. So it wouldn't make sense if John just chose to reiterate everything that the other three had already said. So he's taking his own path. He is, he is giving us information that we, in a lot of cases, don't have from the three synoptic gospels, but he is taking his own path, and he is a skillful writer. He is arranging his material under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit in a very specific way. It's really easy to look at John chapter 12 and say, well, it looks like John is just hopping from event to event, but... But if you dive deeper, you begin to see that he is connecting ideas. And so I want to take you through some of that so that you can see how he is both summarizing and communicating very specific ideas to us, his readers. So we're going to look back at three primary events that take place in chapter 12 and try to draw some connective tissue to these three things. First of all, you have Mary's anointing of Jesus' feet, right? With that very, very expensive perfume. Remember that? Verses 1 to 8, feels like two years ago, right, Adam? (laughs) Roughly two years ago. Remember, she breaks out this expensive vial of perfume. And remember, we put a value on it. Remember, we did did the math and came up with about $56,000 in today's money worth of perfume that she pours on Jesus' feet. And, of course, Judas, and according to uh, Matthew and Mark, other disciples as well, they are not pleased with this. They see this as a waste right? Their vision is still, still cloudy, right? So they see this as wasteful worship. In their minds, it is an unnecessary extravagance. But Jesus says otherwise, right? He says, leave her alone. And he justifies Mary's tenderness and worship in light of his imminent death. That's event number one. Number two, the so-called triumphal entry that I call the tragic entry in verses 12 to 19. Remember, the Jewish crowds are lining the streets and they are ecstatic with joy here comes you know, the promised Messiah. Here is the king who is going to conquer and throw the Romans out of Jerusalem. But we noted that nowhere in the text does Jesus speak of that event in terms of his glory. He doesn't call it glorious. In fact, he doesn't, he doesn't talk anything about being a political king or a military king or anything like that. According to other gospel writers, as a matter of fact, when Jesus gets into the city, he weeps over it. He weeps over the condition of Jerusalem because he knows the darkness that is coming. He knows that judgment is soon to come upon the city. 
That's number two. Number three is this contingent of Greeks who seek an audience with Jesus, verses 20 to 26. And that one in particular seems very obscure. When you read the text, you're like, why is this in here, right? And it gets even weirder when you see that Jesus basically brushes off their request. He never actually meets with them. And so you ask a couple questions, right? Why wouldn't Jesus want to meet with true seekers? And secondly, why does John think this is important enough to put in the gospel? So what is the connection between these three important events? Well, the key is to see them through the lens of the cross. Because that's just days away. To see them through the lens of the cross. In light of the priceless gift that Jesus is about to bestow upon the world, the shedding of his blood for the forgiveness of sins, how appropriate is Mary's extravagant worship of him? In light of what's about to happen, that changes how we interpret that story. The so-called triumphal entry is properly defined by the cross as well. Compare and contrast the types of glory that are present between the the triumphal entry and the cross. You've got this surface-level, momentary, earthly glory that human beings ascribe to Jesus on the one hand, and on the other hand, you have the weighty, eternal, heavenly glory ascribed by God the Father to Jesus as he hangs on the cross. They are very, very different. One looks very impressive to human beings, but ultimately it's false. The other, from a human perspective, looks like a defeat, but ultimately it's the greatest victory in the history of humanity. So even the triumphal entry, we look at it through the lens of the cross. And the Greeks, well, their presence and their desire to seek out Jesus reveals God's sovereign plan for the ages, the very age that we're in right now, this universal need for a Savior, not just the Jews, but the Gentiles as well. So the hope of salvation in in this moment is going beyond the borders of Israel, out to the entire world, and soon the Gentiles will have a Savior, and they will have the chance to be grafted into the kingdom of God alongside their believing Jewish brethren. So all three of these events are connected in some important way to the cross. And as I was reflecting on this uh, this week as I was uh, preparing this, it dawned on me, I started thinking about how Paul says in, in 1 Corinthians, he talks about how the one thing that he constantly preaches is what? Christ and him crucified. And it dawned on me, you know, it's not that we have to get up here every week and, and, and the same message about the cross, but you know what? The cross is what defines everything we read in scripture, right? It's what gives it meaning. And so I think that's really what Paul's saying here is, is that we look at all these events and we weigh them in the shadow of uh, the, the, the vantage point of the cross. And I think we can do that here in chapter 12. So he, in this chapter, we have this major turning point, both for the nation of Israel and for the Gentile world as well. God the Son has now come down from heaven and he has taken on flesh. He is the word of the Father. He is the face of the triune God. And he has spoken to men for God and he has spoken to men as God. And he has shown Israel so many signs. That's what John says. So many signs and miracles. And now he's entered into Jerusalem as their Messiah, the one prophesied in their own scriptures, and the verdict is in, Israel will not believe. Israel will not believe. Let's back up to verse 37, and we'll read exactly that statement. John 12, 37. But though he had performed so many signs before them, they, the Jews, were not believing in him. They were not believing. This was the theme of last Sunday, right? Israel's unbelief. Remember, the Jews had every advantage in the world to recognize the Messiah, to embrace the Messiah, because he'd been promised. They had the scriptures, the covenants. They had all, this, all these advantages, but they were blinded by what? 
by their earthly desires, blinded by the flesh, blinded by the very things that they wanted so badly, this, this conquering king. But then John pointed to something even greater behind that earthly desire, right? Behind that blindness. It was actually part of God's sovereign plan that the Jews would reject their Messiah, at least the first time, right? Second time is going to be very different, but the first coming, they would reject their Messiah. This had been prophesied by Isaiah 700 years before Jesus took on flesh. That's what it says in verse 38. Look, it says this, meaning this unbelief, was to fulfill the word of Isaiah the prophet, which he spoke, Lord, who has believed our report. This is from Isaiah 53. And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? Verse 39, for this reason, look at they could not believe. They could not believe. For Isaiah said again, he, Yahweh, has blinded their eyes. God has blinded their eyes and he has hardened their hearts so they would not see with their eyes, would not perceive with their heart and be converted or turn and I would heal them. Shocking stuff, right? That was, that was tough. We dealt with that last week. So if you missed it, go back and, and listen uh, on our YouTube page. Fact is, the Jewish people did not want a suffering servant. As soon as Jesus started talking about dying and not conquering, they began to turn on him, didn't they? They did not want a suffering servant. As Isaiah said, they didn't want a man who, who grew up from parched land, a man who had no stately appearance, no form that would be attractive to the flesh. And so God gave Israel over to their blindness, and he gave them over to their hardness of heart so that they could not and would not turn and believe and be saved. That's the story of this part of John. Then in verse 41, we read this stunning statement, how Isaiah, remember the great vision that he got, Isaiah 6, the throne room of God and the train of his robe filled the temple and the seraphs flying around saying, holy, holy, holy. He was seeing Jesus in that vision, God the Son. Verse 41, these things Isaiah said because he saw his glory, Jesus' glory, and he spoke of him. He spoke of God the Son in his prophecy. Amazing stuff. That's who, and I said, that's who Jesus has always been. We love to think of him in those 33 years in the flesh, right? And we should. It, it's a glorious thing. But he's eternal. He's always been God the Son. He's always been that king in, in his throne room, right? And he will be again. Revelation 19. Someday he'll come back in all that same splendor and glory. That's our Jesus. So don't domesticate him. That was part of my big point last week. Don't try to tame Jesus he is who he is. All right, let's look at today's passage, verse 42. Nevertheless, many, even of the rulers, now that word in the Greek, archon, can refer to authorities or just leaders in general. Many of these Jewish leaders, it says, believed in him, but because of the Pharisees, they were not confessing him, meaning they wouldn't openly acknowledge believing in him. Why? It says right there, for fear that they would be put out of the synagogue. Now that's the practical reason, right? That they might be banned from attending synagogue. And we've seen this before in John's gospel. That was a serious threat, right? Basically, the Pharisees had the power to ostracize you from the community of faith, and it wrecked your whole life. So this was a serious power that they held. But then John gives us the more important reason behind that, the heart reason, why these leaders weren't willing to openly confess faith in Jesus. And that's in verse 43. For they love the approval of men rather than the approval of God. Man, underline that, highlight that verse. For they love the approval of men rather than the approval of God. They wanted praise and admiration from the Pharisees, right? They wanted those 
really good seats. They're, remember, they're leaders. They want those really good seats in the synagogue. They don't want to be kicked out. So that's what they desire. And, and, and what a searing condemnation. You can tell from this how John feels about the leaders of Israel in his day. And it's not good. Now, I've heard people say, preachers, pastors, even some scholars, try to make the case that these rulers in Israel were actually saved. That they genuinely believed in Jesus, even though they weren't willing to risk their seats in the synagogue. I strongly disagree with that. And I'll give you, I'll give you two reasons why. First of all, we have already seen John multiple times in his gospel describe a less than saving faith. Right? Chapters 2, chapters 5, chapter 8. He's talked about people believing, but then falling away. Right? It's, it's a momentary, temporary faith that usually comes about in response to something that Jesus is doing that benefits them. Right? He's healing people. He's doing miracles. He's feeding 5,000 people at a time. It's what we called earlier in this study sign faith. But it's not saving faith. And I think that's what's being described here in these leaders. They might secretly support Jesus to some extent, but they are not willing to risk the benefits that they have in this culture, the seats in those synagogues, in order to stand by him. That's number one. Secondly, I think the tenor and tone of John's commentary here in verse, verse 43 refutes the notion that these guys were actually saved. You cannot serve two masters, can you? Right Now, I know we usually apply that to money, and that's true. You cannot serve two masters. You cannot serve, listen carefully now, the approval of the world and the approval of God. Because you'll love one and despise the other. You can't love them at the same time. And this is important for all of us to hear. You cannot serve both the approval of men and the approval of God. You certainly can't prioritize the approval of men over and above the approval of God, which is what these rulers were doing. They were putting the approval of men above above God. So let those who have ears hear this. There is a cost to following Jesus as your Lord. Everything is subjugated to that relationship in our lives. Everything. There's a cost to it. True Christians are not ashamed to confess Jesus publicly, even if it costs them their reputation. It might cost you a job. It might cost you a relationship. It might cause division in your family, something else of value. But that's the most important thing for a true Christian. That's number one. Because a true Christ follower knows that the value of following Christ is immeasurable and it is for all eternity. And that is very different than the approval of men. The approval of men is so fickle, right? You might, uh, you might win approval or, or a like or, or whatever it might be today, but tomorrow that's gone, man. That same person can turn on you in a dime, but not with God. It's immeasurable, and it's for all eternity. That's why he comes first. So there really is no such thing as a Christian in hiding. There really is no such thing as a camouflaged Christian follower. And let's just acknowledge this truth. Your level of engagement with the world is always going to test your commitment to Christ and your identity as his disciple. It's going to be a test for you. So if you're constantly out there seeking the world's approval, if you're counting on the world for your likes, or you're rooting your self-image in, in, in how the world responds to your work, or to your appearance, or to your style, or to your kids, or to your social media account, whatever it might be, know this, you are in the grip of a great temptation. Now I realize some of you guys, you work in the world. You, you have to get approval from your secular boss, or you have to get you know, customers, I get that. 
But if you live in that world, just know the temptation is greater for you. You are going to have to, you're going to, have to see your surroundings very carefully and have a, a good biblical worldview. You're going to have to guard your heart more carefully than others. If you're not aware of your surroundings, man, you are a prime target for the enemy. But when your approval comes from the world, you are in the grip of a great temptation. So settle the issue now. What's more important, the approval of men or the approval of God? Listen, the enemy's out there, right? He's prowling around and he would love to silence you or trip you up in front of unbelievers. So you've got to be aware of this. Whatever, whatever your sphere of influence is in this world, and some of us, we work in, pure, work in a purely Christian environment. It's great. I praise God for that. Some of you work in a very secular environment. Know your surroundings. Know what's going on around you. You are in a spiritual battle. If you blindly stumble into your day without being prepared, you're a target. So just know the temptation that is out there. Now, you may be in a profession that, again, you don't have a choice. I get that. Guard your heart. Are you willing to suffer whatever cost may come your way because you identify as a follower of Jesus? Think about your situation right now. Are you willing to undergo that test and to suffer whatever loss is necessary to say, I follow Christ? Because that test may come next week. It may come. Listen to Jesus' warning in Matthew 8. These are familiar words. I'm going to put it on the screen. Jesus says, If anyone wishes to come after me, he must deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever wishes to save his life will lose it. Whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospels will save it. For what does it profit a man to gain the whole world, right? All the likes in the world, and yet forfeit his soul. For what will a man give in exchange for his soul? Are you content with the world giving you all of those props and willing to forfeit your soul? Here's the real kicker, verse 38 in this verse. For whoever is ashamed of me and my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, the Son of Man will also be ashamed of him when he comes in the glory of his Father with the holy angels. There's no such thing as a Christian in hiding. Now, I know that nobody in this room today is ashamed of Jesus, at least not in front of me, not in front of a, a, a friendly audience like your brothers and sisters in Christ. But is that true of you when you're out there among your unsaved neighbors, your unsaved coworkers, doing your thing in the world? Is that still true of you? Have you put yourself out there yet as a follower of Christ? Have you tested that? Are you ready to suffer loss if you put yourself out there and test it and you get blowback for it? Are you willing to do that? Or will you be ashamed of Christ? This is going to get harder in the, in the years to come, guys. Right? Are you feeling the hostility in the world right now? It's only going to get harder. So, be ready for that test. Those rulers in Israel who supposedly believed in Jesus, they were not willing to suffer with him. They were not willing. They were shamed. The risk of losing community life in that synagogue was just too much to ask. But friends, secret faith is not saving faith. Now, we can hope that some of these rulers, maybe Nicodemus is among them, we don't know, but maybe later on after the resurrection, they... They had the courage to, to publicly confess Jesus. We can hope for that, but we don't know. At this point, these are not true believers because they're ashamed of Christ. All right, let's look at verses 44 and 45. This really is the final hinge in the chapter, and this is going to launch us 
into the, the, the next stage of Jesus' ministry. Verse 44. And Jesus cried out and said, He who believes in me does not believe in me, but in him who sent me. He who sees me sees the one who sent me. Now, the question is, who's he talking to here? Remember back in verse 36, we saw John already reported, well, Jesus, remember, he closed his binder and he, he walked out of the temple. He withdrew himself. He hid himself from the people. And yet now we see him crying out to somebody. Well, who? We don't know. <laughs> we don't know. John doesn't tell us here, right? Some scholars have actually suggested that these last seven verses are, have, been, have been put in the wrong order based on the ancient manuscripts that it belongs somewhere earlier on in Jesus' teaching in the temple. But I don't think any mistake was made here at all. I think under the inspiration of the Spirit, what John is doing is recapitulating a whole series of truths that he'd already heard from the Master, and he's using them here at the end of chapter 12 as a way to summarize what Jesus has been saying for three years in his ministry. That makes this very, very important. This is a summary statement. So in a doctrinal statement, there's nothing new in the rest of this chapter. These are things that all have been said, but they're not bound to any time or any place or any audience. These are just universal truths that we should take very, very seriously. Look again at those first two, I would call them magnificent verses in 44 and 45. Look how Jesus is affirming his essential unity with the Father here. And again, we've heard this. This is not new. Back in chapter 8, Jesus rebuked his critics. He said, you know neither me nor my Father. If you knew me, you would know my Father also. But you don't know either of us, he said. Chapter 10, he told the Jewish leaders, very clearly, I and the Father are one. That is, a, that is a wild statement, isn't it? And then later in that same chapter, he said that they should know and understand that the Father is in me and I am in the Father. And man, that language is so challenging to us, right? As finite creatures, we ask ourselves, how could a man like Jesus of Nazareth, who we see in these chapters living a fully human life, how can he be in Yahweh, in the Father? How can he be one with Yahweh when he looks just like us? It's very difficult, right? That, this type of language stretches our minds beyond what we can really process. Now, this would be a really good time to say, I've got a two-hour you know, sermon on the doctrine of the Trinity. I'm not going to do that. We'd be, I mean, this is a whole preaching series, right? To really break down the doctrine of the Trinity. But for today, let me just point out what's been obvious so far in John's gospel. From the very first sentence, we all should know John 1.1, right? From the very first sentence, John has made this very clear. Here it is. Jesus is both equal to God the Father in every way and simultaneously distinct from God the Father. Okay, equal yet distinct. Right from the jump, John 1.1, right? The word was God meaning that he is equal to him in every way, his nature, substance, essence, all of it, equal to God. And the word was with God. And so if you've got two, two persons with each other, they're distinct from each other. You, are you tracking with me on this? It's very important. Equal to the Father, but distinct from the Father. So two distinct persons who are equally God. Right? This is why we study the doctrine of the Trinity. If you believe in me, Jesus says, it's because you believe in the Father. And if you've seen me, you've actually seen him, he says. Again, that's a wild ontological statement, isn't it? If you've seen me, you've seen the Father. I'd be like, I, question? <laughs> like, how is that possible? This is hard stuff, right? Could Jesus been any more clear, though, 
than he is here? Seriously, believe this or not, and you should believe it, and if you don't believe it, it's to your peril, but you can't deny what he's claiming here, that he is God, very God, and yet distinct as a person. And, and, and then it goes from there in terms of the doctrine of the Trinity, but this is wild, right? But those, those two verses are incredibly important Christological statements. Star, put a star next to him in your Bible, whatever. Because you know, I've said this before, there's so many critics out there like, Jesus never claimed to be God. Are you kidding me? All over the place, and especially right there. All right, now the rest of the chapter, verses 46 to 50, continues on that theme, I and the Father are one, and then sort of expands on all the ways that that is true. Look at verse 46. Jesus says, again, he's crying out, okay? John is summarizing his teaching. I have come as light into the world, we've heard that before, so that everyone who believes in me will not remain in darkness. If anyone hears my sayings and does not keep them, I do not judge him, for I did not come to judge the world, but to save the world. He who rejects me and does not receive my sayings or my words has one who judges him. The word I spoke is what will judge him at the last day. Ooh, we'll come back to that. Verse 49, for I did not speak on my own initiative or in my own authority, but the Father himself who sent me has given me a commandment as to what to say and what to speak. I know that his commandment is eternal life. Therefore, the things I speak, I speak just as the Father has told me. Okay, I'm going to give you three really clear statements that come out of this that we can, we can really hang our hats on. Ready? Number one. First one comes out of verse 46, and everybody knows this. The default condition of this world that we live in is darkness. It's darkness. Jesus says it right there. The key word is remain. Apart from Christ, you will remain in darkness. You're like, I don't feel that way. You're in darkness. If you don't know Christ, you are living in darkness. Your eyes are spiritually blind. You remain in darkness. That refers to every single person in this room We because we were all born into a fallen world, right? We were all born into darkness, born into this condition we call depravity in our hearts. Depravity, meaning that we're all self-centered. If you have a little one, you know this is true. As much as we love them, as cute as they are, they are completely self-centered and sinful, and they will smack that other kid, and they will take that toy. You do not have to teach them that in any way, shape, or form. And when it happens, you're like, oh my goodness, depravity right before my eyes. It's true. We're self-centered. All of our wants and desires are, are tainted with sin. That's, that's who we are. It's why we need a rescue, why we need a savior. It's, and if we're honest, even the, even the most secular person, ultimately, if, you're, if they were really honest, would say Okay, yeah, I'm self-centered. That's who we are. We're depraved. And so in light of that, we're also born guilty before a creator who is perfectly holy and demands the same from those he made in his image, that we would be holy as he is holy. So we find ourselves as human beings facing this disease and this dilemma, and we cannot escape on our own. We have no currency to pay for the debt that we owe for sin. We can't escape. And that's not just my opinion. I wish it were otherwise, I, right? It'd be so much easier to get up here and say, okay, here's the 10 things you could do to make yourself right with God. I can't do that. It's not my opinion. This is exactly what Christ has said. The world apart from him is in spiritual and moral darkness, and not one of us is righteous. Not even one, Paul says. 
Paul puts it this way in Ephesians 4. Apart from God the Son, we are all darkened in our understanding, excluded from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in us because of the hardness of our hearts. So there's all these layers of, of, of a tainted heart that break us off from knowing God apart from Christ. It's so important to understand. This is right. This is the bad news before you get to the good news of the gospel. So the only remedy to this darkness is the light of Christ. That's why he said it multiple times. Light has come into the world. I am the light of the world because everybody lives in darkness. If we continue to reject him and refuse to listen to his word, we will continue to grope around in that darkness looking for our own ways to fix things and you'll never find it. You'll just grope around until the day you pass from this world. You need the light of Christ. And, and, and light is just this massive theme in Scripture. In fact, it's all over the Old Testament. Just listen and enjoy the language. Psalm 118, Yahweh is God, and he has given us his light. Psalm 27, the Lord is my light and my salvation. Psalm 44, oh, send your light and your truth. Let them lead me. Psalm 119, your word is a lamp to my feet and a light to my path. Same chapter, the unfolding of your word gives light. It gives understanding to the simple. Isaiah promises this. This is one of the great promises. And then it's confirmed in Revelation 22. That in the new heaven and the new earth, this is the condition. It says, no longer will you have the sun for light, nor for brightness will the moon give you light, but you will have the Lord as an everlasting light and your God for your glory. Wow. Light's a big deal. So that's, that's number one that comes out of this section. The world, the default of the world is darkness. Here's the second one that comes out of here. Everything that Jesus has said and done is backed by and rooted in the authority of God the Father. And we've seen this over and over again, right? You see it here in verses 49 and 50. There is, there's no separation between the two persons, no distance between them. There is only this perfect will of of unity or unity of will and unity of purpose, God the Son speaking and doing only what the Father tells him to do. Only. Right? They have this perfect relationship because they're, they're one. So he's only doing what the Father instructs him to do. And we've heard this over and over again. Chapter 5. Jesus says, Truly I say to you, the Son can do nothing of himself unless it is something he sees the Father doing. Whatever the Father does, these things the Son also does. In chapter 7, he says, My teaching is not mine, but his who sent me. Chapter 8, When you lift up the Son of Man, then you will know that I am he, and I do nothing on my own initiative. Over and over again. In particular, what you see in these last few verses is Jesus asserting that he is the faithful messenger, the word of God, right? The logos of God. I have come as this faithful messenger. These are the Father's words, the Father's teaching, and I am the faithful logos of God. That's why John starts with the word, right? That's who Jesus is. Notice here also how he refers to commandments that the Father gives him. You're like, whoa, hold on a second. We're not Old Testament people. It's those Old Testament people that have commands. Newsflash. There are New Testament commands all over the pages. <laughs> but we like to think that, right? When Jesus speaks, he is commanding us. It's the word of the Father, right? Coming through him. He's not just making suggestions. Why do we do this? Why do we bifurcate the Bible and say, Old Testament commands, Jesus' suggestions, <laughs> right? Or helpful hints on how to lead a happier life. 
what is wrong with us? that we make these distinctions. No, he's commanding. Jesus is commanding. And the most important command is what? Believe. Believe. Believe in my works. Believe in my words because they are the works and words of the Father who sent me. So all of these things fit together, right? Jesus is the exact representation of the Father, the radiance of his glory. And his word is the Father's word. So that's number two. Number three is this. Final warning. Jesus gives a final warning here about the judgment that will come. It's not up for, up for debate. It's not a question. Judgment will come. So he's, he's going to give one last warning. John's going to quote him one last warning here. It's so funny. I read this, this great little joke that made me literally LOL this week. <laughs> and I'll just share it with you because it, maybe it, we'll see if it makes you LOL. So this teenager walks into, walks into the kitchen and sees, you know, that stack of family mail on the kitchen counter? And he looks at it, and he sees one of the monthly bills sitting there, and right on the envelope, printed in big words, is final notice. And he turns to his mom, and he goes, that's good news. They're going to stop bothering us. <laughs> that's not how it works, right? Oh, good. Final notice. They're going to stop sending us things. This is great. It's never good to ignore final notices. And that's true with bill, bill collectors, and it's really true with God to ignore final notices. You can try to say, hey, good news. I've heard the warning and God's not going to bother me again. But a day of judgment is coming. It's inevitable. Paul said this to the Athenians. Listen to, Paul goes to Athens to try to find saving faith. And he says this in Acts 17. He says, Athenians, listen, God has fixed a day. That day is already set. God has fixed a day in which he will judge the world in righteousness through a man whom he has appointed, having furnished proof to all men by raising him from the dead. That was his argument to these philosophical Greeks. There's coming a day. Now, we pointed this out before, but Jesus says it again here in verse 47. Look, the purpose of his first coming was not to judge the world, but to save the world, right? But we mentioned this several weeks ago. The concept of judgment is still embedded in his first arrival, right? It's there. Why? Because when the light shines, it divides all of humanity into two camps. Those who respond to the light and those who hide from it. I don't want to be exposed. Some come to it, a few. The vast majority say, no, thank you. I don't want to be exposed. So he came to save, but that light does divide the world into sheep and goats, doesn't it? It has to. It can't be otherwise. The very same truth that is life and forgiveness for the believer is death and condemnation for the unbeliever. There's no other logical choice. Friends, there's no fence sitting allowed on this. There's no fence sitting when it comes to this final warning. If you don't have God the Son, you don't have God the Father. It's, it's that simple. And while John has made it clear that God is sovereign over all these things, including Israel's unbelief, you also have to see how he emphasizes that the Jewish people made a willful choice and they're accountable for that choice, right? God's sovereignty and human responsibility work together. There is accountability. Whoever rejects Jesus is under God's condemnation because when a person rejects Jesus, they are rejecting God the Father who sent him because they're one and the same. Now, this morning may be the hour of decision for somebody who's sitting here. Because uh, I can't know your hearts. I, know, I think I know every face here, but I cannot know your hearts for sure.
But if you are undecided about Jesus, let me tell you, undecided is disbelieving. And that's so important to say. There is no neutrality, no fence sitting here. Undecided or still looking right now means disbelieving. In fact, it's rebellion at this point. Not to believe. That's the commandment from God. Believe in my son. It's rebellion. The wrath of God hangs over you. That can be remedied this morning if you're still undecided. So I urge you to heed the final notice. The final notice. God the Son is the way, the truth, and the life. And nobody comes to Yahweh. Nobody comes to the Father except through Him. Period. Amen? Last thing I want to share. Uh, And this is for all my believing friends here this morning. This is the take-home lesson. In fact, I'll put this on the screen. Notice one last thing in this final section. Look at how Jesus emphasizes, again, his words and his teachings. Verse 47, he says, my sayings. Verse 48, my sayings, the word I spoke. Verse 49, I speak, what to say and what to speak. Verse 50, I speak. It's all over the place here. Again, Jesus is the face of the Trinity and the person through whom the Godhead has spoken to all men. Thus, he's called the word. Right? That's what, again, that's what Isaiah saw in the vision. He saw the physical manifestation of, the, of God the Son, the second person of the Trinity. He saw, because the Father's spirit, but he saw Jesus, right? Some kind of pre-incarnate form, glorious form of God the Son. So Jesus is the face of the Trinity. He's the Word. He's the communicator. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. Listen to Hebrews 1, 1, and 2. This is such an important verse. It says, God... That's the triune God. After he spoke long ago to the fathers, that's the Old Testament saints, in the prophets, and he spoke in many portions and in many ways, in these last days, in the church age that we're in right now, he has spoken to us in his son. That's how he's spoken. Now, God has spoken to us within and without, right? He's spoken to us outside in creation. Just go outside and see his glory. It's everywhere. But he's also spoken to our conscience, right? So he's spoken so clearly in revealing himself that when the verdict over our lives is pronounced someday, no person is ever going to have an excuse for not knowing God. There's going to be no objections in God's courtroom. Nobody's going to go, well, God, let me show you the six ways you didn't reveal yourself. No, I did, and you knew. The question is, did you respond to light or did you suppress the truth about me? in unrighteousness, because you loved your sin, because you didn't want to be exposed. There'll be no excuses on the judgment day, because God has made himself clear. Who did we worship in the days we were given? Did we worship self and what we wanted, or did we worship God? Whose whose praise and admiration did we seek after, the world's or God's? These are simple questions, questions for all of us to ask. Now, we're not going to be perfect in this, and there's forgiveness when we fall short, But the core truth of your heart better be, I'm seeking the approval of God over men, right? And I'm seeking to worship God over self. And by the power of the Spirit within me, I am striving in that direction. I'm in that battle, right? Because there's grace for falling short. But that better be the core truth of your heart. Or maybe you're sitting here this morning and you really aren't saved. And that's some, you need to do some business with God on that. Look at verse 48 in particular. He who rejects me and does not receive my sayings has one who judges him. The word I spoke is what will judge him at the last day. 
So in a unique and special way, God has revealed himself and spoken to all of humanity through the word of Christ. And he has seen fit to sovereignly, sovereignly collect his word into one book, right? And to sustain it and transmit it over thousands of years. And it's sitting in your lap this morning, either in a book form or on your phone. But you have it in your lap. That is an amazing thing, is it not? That God has made himself that clear in writing, in a person, and you're sitting here with it, and yet we treat it like what? I'll get to that next week. That's an amazing thing. God has done an amazing thing. It ought to be your most prized possession. It's the very word of God, the very thing that in the end will judge between life and death. Did I believe in this book? Did I believe in this word? Did I believe in this person? Was it what drove my life, or was I about me? Was I really worshiping idols? Was it about my stuff and my life? Or was it about the author of that book that's in your lap right now? This is how Calvin paraphrased what Jesus says in verse 48. He says, To the disbeliever, do not think you've escaped out of the hands of God. For though I should altogether hold my peace, the word alone which you have despised is sufficient to judge you. How do we despise God's word? We ignore it. We treat it as something common. Ultimately, it doesn't guide our life. It's not the anchor for our life. What drives us, our feelings, what we want. These are the things that check our hearts, right? Again, there's mer- there, there is mercy for falling short, but you better have that, that sense in your life, in your heart, in your mind, that that's what you want, that you're worshiping the one true God. Now, there are many people today, they respect the Bible. Some of them are even willing to grant that Jesus was a righteous sage or a wise rabbi. They, they like his good deeds. They like his healings. They like some of his teachings, but not all of them. They don't like the whole word, right? The, word, the world wishes to edit Jesus. They want to bring him into line with their way of thinking. They want to shape Jesus. They want to use him to justify their earthly desires. They'll point to anything about his compassion, his tolerance, his mercy, and they'll be like, love that. But then the hard truths come. Things like holiness and obedience and suffering and sexual ethic and marriage and judgment and hell. No thank you. We don't get to pick and choose. We don't get to pick and choose. The world will never let Jesus speak for himself. And in the end, that word that they reject will be what judges them. As I said last week and I said this morning, we dare not domesticate God the Son. He is full of grace, but he's also a consuming fire. So let's make sure we see both sides of that. I can't help but think as I was writing this last night, this is one of the main areas I think we as the evangelical church have failed in our outreach and evangelism over maybe the last 50 years or so. We tried to tame Jesus because we thought we could sell him as a product to the world. Look how nice Jesus is. Look what a great buddy he would make in your life. Look how he would make you prosperous, how he would improve things in your marriage. We we sold this tame, domesticated Jesus to the world. Why? So we could fill seats and build big buildings. What do we get out of it? Hypocrisy and false professions of faith and people falling away when the reality of life didn't match the hype. Notice in verse 47 how Jesus describes the person who will come into judgment. He hears my sayings and he does not keep them. Does not keep them. 
Genuine saving faith is not feel-good faith, friends. It's obedient faith. Not perfectly, but it's obedient faith. It's a heart that desires to obey, not just to feel, not just to go, oh, I just love Jesus, woo, and that's it. And that's all I have to do is feel good about him. That's the product, the false product that we've sold for decades now. Saving faith is obedient faith. It takes in the entire counsel of God's word, the grace and the truth, and it shapes and conforms our character over time. It shapes and conforms our motivations and our lives to what the word says. It's not something we do. It's supernatural. The spirit does that in us as we submit to the will of God when we're truly born again. But guys, that word has to mean everything to us. The word has to mean everything. It's our light and our anchor and our guidebook and our truth and our salvation. It's Jesus, the word. Here at Oak Hill, we preach it and we pray it and we sing it. It's at the center of everything that we do. It has to be. And it has to be at the center of your life if you want to grow in your knowledge of God, if you want to mature in your walk with Christ. It has to be at the center of your life. There are no cheap substitutions. It's what you need. So do you read the word consistently? Do you study it? Do you go beyond reading? Do you study God's word? Because you want to know God more. Do you study it? Does it shape how you think each day? Does it shape how you feel each day? Does it guide how you treat your spouse? How you speak to your neighbor? How you interact with that person at work that sometimes gets on your nerves? Does the word shape all of that? Does it guide you? Does it impact how you parent your kids or how you treat your parents? Does the word inform the way you see the world around you? Do you, do, you, do you see the world around you and go, I just don't know what's happening? Or do you go to the word and say, oh, okay. I, I put on my biblical worldview so I can understand what's happening around me. When you're struggling, do you turn to the word for counsel? Or do you just dip into your feelings and emotions and try to process through it on your own? Does the word inform those things in your life? The word should mean everything. Friends, I, I believe hard times are coming for Christians. I really do. Economic hardship is coming. We have leadership failures at every level of government. We have loss of freedoms coming down the pike. We have division and conflict in this country like I've never seen in my lifetime. Increasing threats and violence. And much of the blame for those things, already you're feeling it. Since Roe v. Wade was overturned, it's coming at us. I told the elders this week in our meeting, I read this guy that, uh, that I, I read a lot of his stuff because he's very prescient in the way he looks down the, the road and sees what's coming. He says, do not underestimate the level of hate that's coming at your church and at Christians in general. Start, start tweaking your ministries to deal with this new culture we live in because the hate's coming. Just as in the days of Nero, we're going to become the scapegoat for a lot of unrest in this society. Why do I say that? Because there's two things you can do to not just survive that, but to thrive in it. One is to anchor yourself to God's word, period. And number two is to do it with your arms locked with your brothers and sisters in the local church. We'll not only survive what's coming our way, but we'll thrive in the midst of it, just as the first century church did. If you're anchored in God's word, if that is what you filter everything through, if that's the, what you're conforming your life to and your thoughts and your feelings and all of it, if that's what you're cemented to and you're doing it with the, your brothers and sisters in this room, we'll thrive in the midst of it.
May it be so with every single person here at Oak Hill. May we not see people fall away, deconstruct, whatever word you want to put on it, because of the pressures of this world. May we continue to disciple one another and strengthen one another and keep putting down deeper roots so that we can thrive in the midst of all that. Amen? Amen. Bow your heads. Lord, uh, such simple truths, Lord, that you've said over and over to us in John's gospel, but so profound to, to see your oneness with the Father, to see how you have represented the Father to us in such powerful ways that you are the Word and that you've given us your Word. We have it with us, Lord. God, I pray for my brothers and sisters here at Oak Hill. I pray for myself that we would continue, Lord, not to doubt, but to shore up our belief in who you are and what you've done and that you are the only way, truth, and life. God, help us to Help us to anchor ourselves to your word. Help us to anchor our lives to one another in the local church for whatever's coming down the path, Lord, because you're sovereign, and so whatever you want to bring our way, we will welcome it, and we will trust in you. But strengthen us for that journey, Lord. Thank you again for the beauty of your word for this time this morning. We love you. We praise you in the name of Jesus. Amen.